This is Africa Digest. Seventeen hundred hours Central African time. Good afternoon and welcome to Africa Digest. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from Johannesburg, South Africa. We're available on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi in studio with Jolani Tulona Zuma as well as Neto Chimani. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Portugal has ordered a freeze on bank accounts held in the country by Angola's billionaire and former first daughter Isabel dos Santos. The murder case faced by Lesotho's first lady, Maesia Tabane, plays an integral part in the process to reform and uh, towards stabilizing the country. And all eyes are on South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa as he delivers his State of the Nation address. We'll also be having your sporting as well as your economics news later on in the hour. But right now it's time for your latest news bulletin. Here is Shwalani Tulo. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. The Secretary General of South Africa's opposition EFF, Marshal Dlamini, says they are definitely going ahead with plans to disrupt the State of the Nation address tonight. The EFF has vowed to disrupt President Cyril Ramaphosa's speech if he does not fire Public Enterprises Minister Pravin Gordon by this evening. Dlamini says that Gordon has misled Ramaphosa about the state of affairs at ESCOM. Yes, that is the plan that when we enter the National Assembly, where when Cyril starts speaking, we're going to speak and demand of him that he must uh, fire Pravin Kotan. So that is the plan. Sudan has signed a deal to compensate the families of 17 American sailors who died when their ship, the USS Cole, was bombed at a port in Yemen in the year 2000. This is a key condition set by the U.S. for Sudan to be removed from a terrorism blacklist. It is not clear how much Khartoum will pay al-Qaeda claimed responsibility for the attack in which the warship was rammed by a rubber dinghy packed with explosives. The U.S. ruled Sudan was responsible because the two suicide bombers were trained in the country an allegation denied by Khartoum. Firefighters in the Nigerian city of Aubekuta say they have managed to put out a blaze at the compound where former President Olesegun Obasanjo lives before it reached his home. Emergency services says a storage building was completely destroyed in the blaze, but the main building was reportedly not affected. The cause of the fire is still unclear. Local media have quoted eyewitnesses as saying that it could have been caused by a power surge. Ethiopia's parliament has passed a controversial law aimed at curbing hate speech and the disinformation on mainstream and social media. Critics say the law could be used to suppress dissent ahead of a general election later this year. It will be the first poll in Ethiopia since Nobel Peace Prize winner Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed took office in 2018. He introduced sweeping reforms and promised free and fair elections. And finally, the World Health Organization says it's seeking further clarity from China about recent changes to how cases of the coronavirus are being confirmed. The number of cases recording in China has soared after Hubei province at the center of the outbreak started using a broader definition to diagnose people. The BBC's Stephen MacDonald has the story. Officials are saying if you have the symptoms of the coronavirus and a CT scan showing a lung infection, well that's enough. You don't have to have done the official test, hence the massive jump today. If you look at the jump in deaths, it's also meant, well hang on, people are saying how many more people might have died then from this virus? You haven't put in the dead column who maybe didn't go to hospital or didn't get treatment or were receiving treatment, but not necessarily positively identified in this way. So the death toll could actually be much higher than we thought it was. Headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa. I'm Jolani Tulo. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. 
What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLEC to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Portugal has ordered a freeze on bank accounts held in the country by Angola's billionaire and former first daughter Isabel dos Santos, who is accused of stealing state funds to build a colossal business empire. The order was prompted by a request from Angola where Dos Santos has been named as a suspect in a criminal investigation into the misappropriation of funds from the state oil company Sonangol. Dos Santos, whose net worth is estimated at $2 billion, US dollars, has vehemently denied any wrongdoing. For more on this, Channel Africa spoke to Susana Corroado, the vice president of the anti-corruption organization Transparency International Portugal branch. At this point, the the freeze is a consequence of a, a request from from the Angolan authorities for international judicial uh, cooperation. So there are uh, so far, uh, as we know, there are no uh, ongoing investigations uh, in Portugal concerning directly Isabel dos Santos, um, and so this is just uh, international uh, cooperation. What this means is that things are moving forward. We still need to see what. What, um, what will be the consequences in the future. But so far, at least between Angola uh, and Portugal, international cooperation is working and, and the investigations are moving forward. However, there are still um, concerning aspects. Sure. Uh, for instance, uh, Isabel dos Santos is, is, um, is trying to sell her shares in some uh, Portuguese companies. Actually, uh, yesterday, uh, two days ago, we heard that um, she's already uh, signed uh, the deal to, to sell the shares of, um, uh, of a Portuguese bank. And we don't know where that money is going to, to be paid so we, if it were, given that um, that her accounts here are, are frozen, um, I very much doubt that the payment by the Spanish group that bought her share will be made in a in a Portuguese account. So she she will still have access. Which banks where the accounts are held are those, and have those banks commented yet in light of uh, the public prosecutor's announcement uh, to freeze the accounts? Uh, no, and we are not a- a- expecting any any comments. So the um, the Portuguese public prosecutor uh, issued uh, an official statement confirming uh, the freeze. Um, a- According to some and bank accounts in two different banks, uh, with which she all, uh, always had some kind of, of connection. One of them is Eurobic, which is the the bank she owned. And so, I mean, this is this is business as as usual. For freezes happen, so uh, we don't expect any any comments uh, from them. What is also interesting is this is not confirmed. It's just uh, media reports that say that uh, the the balance of those accounts was very low, just a few thousand euros, and that is also concerning because we don't know whether it was it was already like that so it was the, the balance was was quite low if money has been taken uh, away from those bank accounts uh, in the in the recent days and if so uh, why was there any due diligence was there any communication so there's still a lot of believing that uh, due diligence and uh, supervision has failed once again now we understand that uh, she together with her associates uh, have a huge stakes in several portuguese firms as well as uh, bank accounts talk to us about the extent of uh, the stakes that she has in portugal which forms part of her business empire yes yeah, so uh, besides owning almost uh, half 
of this bank, um, this Portuguese bank. It's called Eurobic. She also has uh, shares in a, a company called Efasec in, in, the, um, in the industry. Sure. Uh, we also know that she's trying to sell uh, that share. Um, but so far, the, the company itself stated that, that they're working uh, as usual, that their bank accounts are not frozen, but they, they, um, she's trying to, to sell uh, her share. She also has uh, shares in um, a big telecommunication company called Nosh, and in, in the, uh, another energy company, it's an oil and electricity company called Galp. And so far, we haven't heard anything about her intentions to share or do whatever uh, she wants to do with the, with these two um, companies. She also had other interests in companies through the, the uh, Angolan uh, oil company, Sonangol. So Sonangol also has lots of um, of shares in Portuguese companies. And until recently, she was controlling Sonangol. So sometimes it was difficult to define what was Isabel Chens and what was um, what was Sonangol, but officially it's uh, only in these uh, four companies. Now, huge stakes uh, that she has, uh, judging by what you are saying there, but uh, it won't be easy to bring her back uh, home to answer to these allegations, is it? Because we understand there's going to be issues uh, to be sorted out with regards to extradition treaties and so on. It will be a big challenge uh, to bring her back home uh, to face uh, these uh, charges. Yes, and this will this will also um, this will be a major challenge for um, international cooperation, and uh, uh, we will also evaluate whether all this the, this communication from several uh, countries about fighting corruption, uh, whether this is just uh, lip service or it is true, but it will also depend on the the um, Angolan authorities to request international first. Uh, and then to, to move on with the, with the investigations. It's possible that she will never return to Angola to to be tried. If um, if there's a, if there's a freeze in many other countries uh, besides Portugal, or if if uh, she can't uh, leave Russia or Dubai, that will be a, a major setback for uh, for her lifestyle. And that was Susana Corrado, Vice President of Transparency International Portugal branch, on the line from the capital Lisbon, talking to Kumbelo Mujalele. The murder case faced by Lesotho's first lady, Maesia Tabani, seems to play an integral part in the process to reform and stabilize. Tabani faces a murder and attempted murder for the assassination that killed her predecessor and husband's estranged wife, Tipolelo Tabani, in 2017. That Sibola, a close friend, uh, Tato Sibola rather, a close friend to the family was wounded in the shooting. Sibola now is a key witness in the case, but she is in hiding in South Africa. She says she fears there'll be another attempt on her life. Namambulani takes a look at the woman who's at the center of the high-level murder case gripping the mountain kingdom. The story of the estranged relationship between Lusutu's Prime Minister Tom Tabane and his deceased wife Dipulelo was common knowledge. The Prime Minister was in the process of divorcing Dipulelo and had been in a public relationship with Maesaya for several years. He had declared his intention to marry Maesaya. Close family friends and high-ranking members of the ruling party, ABC, tried to mediate a process to ensure the transition of the First Lady's office was smooth. Tato Sibula was one of those people. She had not expected the matter would end in tragedy. We were trying to make peace between Medipolelo Tabani and the current First Lady so that there is a smooth uh, transition of divorce and that uh, the current First Lady becomes First Lady without any problems. So we had gone to Lady Brand to meet a mediator from the side of Maezaya Tabani. Then when we came back through Maseru border, we went through to Meripulelo's home in Masana. When we were just about to reach her gate, then we were just in a, a storm of bullets. Pulelo Tabane was killed by unknown gunmen two days before Tabane's official inauguration. In the same incident, Sibulla sustained two gunshot wounds on her right side. She never expected her relationship with the Tabane family would have landed her in a position where she almost lost her life in such a manner.
Subulas says the relation dates back to the founding days of the ruling party, ABC. I'm one of the founding members of the ABC. And uh, I convinced like my family, my friends to join the ABC at the time. With the relationship, it started very long time ago, around the early 90s. First, my friend was Ngoya Tabani, the prime minister's daughter. And then the relationship uh, went to the father first, even before the late Medipolelo. And then the friendship went to Medipolelo. So uh, I can say I was family friends with the Tabani family. And I had a very close relationship back then with the Prime Minister. Subula, who's in hiding in South Africa, says her relationship with Prime Minister Tabane broke down when he and his wife Dipolelo separated. Ever since the Prime Minister got in a public relationship with the current First Lady, we've never really had such talks because uh, he became sort of a stranger to me. I could no longer access him. This is why the day we were shot, we had gone to Lady Brent to speak to the mediator of their side. It shows that I had no, long, I, I no longer had the relationship access. with access to the Prime Minister. Yes. Subula now is pleading with the Sadak region and South Africa to apply pressure on Lesotho's government to ensure her safety as the trial unfolds. She has been in hiding without any assistance from a witness protection program or anything similar. Subula is also disappointed that the prime suspect in this murder case was granted bail. She believes Maesai's release doesn't give her the confidence that the matter will be tried fairly. I was expecting them to oppose bail to as the state because like we are sort of on the same side because I'm the state witness besides being the complainant. You see in this case I'm two things. I'm the complainant of attempted murder but I'm also the state witness on murder of Medipole. So I think me and the DPP or rather the state we are on one side because the other side is the side of the criminals or the suspects. The murder case has significantly impacted the internal politics of the ruling party. After it emerged that Prime Minister Tom Tabane's cell phone was linked to the murder, ABC leaders applied pressure on him to step down. He's agreed to resign, but the timeline is still not clear. My SIA Tabane is expected to return to court next week. I'm Noma Polani in Johannesburg. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NetLab to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I tried looking for a job for a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Cameroon opposition political parties are calling for the cancellation of results of the February 9th local elections, which give the ruling Cameroon People's Democratic Movement of long-serving leader Paul Beers a landslide victory. The opposition says massive fraud characterized the election. In the meantime, results of the parliamentary polls are still expected. Moki Kinzeka reports from Yaoundé. Dennis Kemlemo, spokesperson of the Opposition Social Democratic Front, SDF, says his party has petitioned the Constitutional Council to totally cancel the February 9 local and national assembly elections in Cameroon. Kemlemo says the elections were characterized by so many irregularities. Among some of these reasons is massive fraud, corruption of voters, troops sent from other regions voted on behalf of the local population. Other reasons include gun violence, 
low voters' participation. And there were also a lot of threats which uh, made some candidates to even desist or withdraw their bids. Kemlemu said besides the petition submitted by his party, individual candidates had also asked the Constitutional Council to cancel the elections in their constituencies. He said some candidates of his party were scandalized that the military the government said it dispatched to the English-speaking northwest and southwest regions to protect civilians from separatist fighters who had vowed to disrupt the polls were instead stuffing ballot boxes to favor the CPDM party. The military has refuted the allegations, stating that troops were out only for security reasons. The Constitutional Council, in a release, said 22 political parties, including the National Union for Democracy and Progress, the United Democratic Party, the Cameroon Democratic Union, and the National Salvation Front, have filed petitions asking for either a partial or total cancellation of the local polls the ruling CPDM party of President Paul Bia won with a landslide majority. According to the results published by vote counting commissions in all the administrative units of the country, the CPDM has won over 300 of the country's 380 councils. The CPDM was unchallenged in about 200 councils. The results also indicate that less than 30% of the close to 8 million voters actually voted and voter participation in the English-speaking regions where separatist fighters have vowed to disrupt the polls was less than 10%. The ruling CPDM party has called on its supporters to respect the verdict of the elections as proclaimed by competent authorities. Motanga Monjimba CPDM candidate who was declared winner says his party is already thinking of what to do to ameliorate the living conditions of the people who voted for the CPDM. He says he already has plans for the people of Limbe who voted for him in the local elections. I dream every day to see this Limbe become like the city of Marrakesh. When you look at the town of Marrakesh, it is well planned. The houses have one column. And that is the more reason why when we came back from Marrakesh, there's been a constant attention paid on street lighting. And that's gone a long way to keep our town secured. We've been assisting communities to give them pipe bone water, the building of an ultra-modern market, to make it look like what we see when we move out of this town to other countries. George Elanga Obam, Cameroon Minister of Decentralization and Local Governance, says the government is ready to start providing funds for elected local officials to go to work immediately. He says Cameroon's laws on decentralization voted in December 2019 and promulgated by Cameroon President Paul Bia gives greater autonomy and seats more powers to local councils. It was the state intervening in the roads, in education, in the health, and the creation of hospitals and schools. Now, mayors have the power to recruit people in health centers. They can even create schools. These are real powers that have been given to them. But having the state overseeing what is done. The Constitutional Council says it is already examining petitions forwarded to it by political parties and candidates and that public hearings will be in the days ahead. Results of the parliamentary elections, that is the lower house of parliament, will be proclaimed on or before March 1. The electoral law gives a maximum of 20 days after the polls for the Constitutional Council to proclaim the results. Even though not yet proclaimed, some political parties and candidates have already filed petitions for the cancellation of the parliamentary election complaining of widespread fraud. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yawundi, Cameroon. At the just-concluded African Union Summit in Ethiopia, African leaders discussed on the need to ensure that the African continent free trade uh, is area is implemented by July. 
This is an intra-trade idea that seeks to expand business within the continent by encouraging state to trade more with each other. Channel Africa's Coletta Wanyoi spoke to the Executive Secretary of UN Economic Commission for Africa, Vera Songwe. Is the African continent ready to implement the African continent of free trade area by July? The CFT happened because we had already regional economic communities that were doing well, the SADC, the ECOWAS, that already had, you know, EAC already has a customs union. So the CSTA is just building off of, of, of the work that has been done there. So this is a 10-year process, and it is true that over the last two years there has been an acceleration, but it's really building off of institutions that exist and that have been strengthened by this renewed, reinvigorated conversation on trade. What are some of the things the continent needs to do now, before July at least, to ensure that the private sector believes more in this intra-trade area? At the Economic Commission for Africa, we have uh, put together a team, a cross-cutting team, that is working on seeing how we can ensure that the private sector is one, because it needs to be a lot of consultation. We've done, we must have done now, I think, consultations in every region, so regional consultations, but we're going once, regional consultations with the private sector. We're going one step further, and we're now doing national consultations with the private sector, just to ensure first that the private sector is aware, informed, knowledgeable about what is happening. And it's very interesting. Once we do this private sector consultations, the private sector begins to be the one that pushes for ratification. This is the case in Nigeria. It is the big private sector, the Manufacturers Association, that is driving uh, the CFTA forward. We just had some consultations in Djibouti with the, the private sector and the Chamber of Commerce. I think there is beginning to be more interest. It is correct that the CFTA is a political initiative because you need to pass legislation. And so you need that political side uh, to happen. But I think we need the private sector to guide us and make sure that the legislation that we pass is business friendly. We are seeing the U.S. proposing foreign aid budget cut. This will affect a lot of countries in the African continent that depend on these four major projects like health, education, uh, agriculture. Um, so sh- should we be scared? What should we be thinking uh, with such decisions coming through? I think that one of the messages that has come out of the summit is, you know, African solutions to African problems. Uh, uh, some problems are global and we do need global solutions, as the Secretary General said in his uh, 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 speech, but in terms of resources, the, the region and the continent has quite an amount of resources. Getting the CFTA to work today is more about political leadership and less about resources. We're going to need eventually resources to ensure that, for example, on the phytosanitary side, the standards that uh, of our goods meet the right levels. But we do have South Africa, for example, as a leader in this. And I think we must not forget the possibility of South-South exchange. And I think when we talk about 2020, the beauty of 2020 is that in 2020, you have best practice examples on the continent. We can reach out to South Africa, we can reach out to Cote d'Ivoire, we can reach out to Kenya, we can reach out to Morocco, for examples, of how to do things right and even for support. So my sense is... We should not shy away from dwindling donor uh, resources. Of course, as donor resources dwindle, we will have to come back and look at our domestic resource mobilization capacities. A lot of the donors that give us money, tax to GDP is at 30 40%. On the continent, we at 17%. So we need to ensure that we can mobilize our savings better. And that is Executive Secretary of UN Economic Commission for Africa, Vera Songwe, talking to Channel Africa's Coletta Wanjohi. Just a reminder, Spotlight Africa, a feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective, can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT, with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours, Thursday at 300 hours, and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT. Listen to Spotlight Africa, a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective. Spotlight Africa. Now it's time for your latest headlines. Here is Joelani Tulo. 
SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Samora. Making headlines, the High Court in Lesotho has granted the victim's application to oppose First Lady Maesaya Tabani's bail. The Secretary General of South Africa's opposition EFF, Marshal Lamini, says they are definitely going ahead with plans to disrupt the State of the Nation address tonight. And finally, Sudan has signed a deal to compensate the families of 17 American sailors who died when their ship, the USS Cole, was bombed in Yemen 20 years ago. For Channel Africa, I'm Cholani Tulo. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. The Poultry Child Support Grant of just 28.89 US dollars a month is insufficient and significantly impact malnutrition rates among South Africa's children. And it is time for South African President Cyril Ramaphosa to step in and do something about it. This is the message to the President ahead of the State of the Nation address this evening from the National Center of Excellence in Food Security. To further discuss the expectations from the President's address, Professor Julian May from the Centre of Excellence in Food Security at the University of Western Cape in South Africa speaks to Channel Africa's Lebuchang Mabange. We are a Centre of Excellence in Food Security and obviously our interest is in statements which might help people have a healthy and nourishing diet that's safe and that's adequate. Um, And to be able to do that in South Africa, one of the things that we're going to have to focus on is how to ensure that our children are fed better. So I would hope that um, the president would outline some approaches to dealing with the very sad state of affairs that we have in South Africa about child child nutrition. Uh, We have about a quarter of our children in South Africa who are um, stunted. Uh, What that means is that they've had, at some point when growing up, um, they've had so little food that it's affected their physical growth. Um, And that has quite severe consequences for their future. It affects their immune systems. It means that they're more prone to get um, unwell. It also means that they might not grow and develop to the the potential that they had. Um, And so we need to be thinking about what do we do about stunting among South African children, I, I believe, as a priority. And talk to us about why you think the child support grant is insufficient. Uh, the big issue here is we've adopted many policies that other countries have adopted to try and deal with the position of children. We've adopted the same policies as Brazil or Peru. Those countries have succeeded in reducing um, child stunting as a, as a, as a measure of, 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 of children's health. We haven't. It's stayed the same for the last 20 years uh, at about a quarter of our children. Um, there are a couple of reasons why 430 rand is not sufficient. Uh, the first is that he- healthy food tends to cost more than food that is unhealthy. So it's easier for a mum to rather um, buy food that is, has high salt or high sugar because the prices are lower than trying to source food that is healthy, such as fresh foods. Um, it's easier to store things that are that are being processed rather than to store food that is fresh. And so to be able to feed a child properly, you actually need more money than than, than, than what has been provided by the government at the moment. Um, we know that the poverty line is above, well above the, the grant that's provided, and the Peter Maritzburg Action Community Actions um, Association uh, regularly puts out a food basket estimate, and that's far, it shows that we need far more than 430 rand to be able to provide a nourishing diet for children. And how much do you think is enough? Uh, <laughs> I understand the president has... Um, many priorities to deal with, and I understand that South mm-hmm. Africa at the moment uh, is, is short of financial resources. Uh, I would like to see that grant up to, to go up to buy to at least above 600 rand per month, possibly more, like possibly to try and double it. And the Center of Excellence in Food Security also urged the president to um, support the establishment of a food safety agency and a national food safety institute in order to effectively address the many safety challenges that exist in South Africa's resource-poor climate. Talk to us a bit about that. The issue is 
Um, as we are trying to feed more and more people and as we have uh, more people living in urban areas, we need to be aware of, of, of the food system that provides safe food. Okay. The outbreak of listeria that we had, uh, what, about two years ago, with, the, with, 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 and suddenly we found that the food that we like to consume, poloni, was a, sort, was a risk to, our, to us. It really highlights the need that we need more, better regulation of food safety. Um, that, uh, and that's not only in, in the informal in sector where many people buy food, but in, in, in the formal sector as well. Um, we need better understanding of how food safety is changing. Um, at the moment, we're, we've just experienced in the, the warmest January ever. And with climate change, I think we can expect more food safety risks and risks that we don't at this stage understand. And you also stated that there's an alarming state of hunger and food insecurity among students and tertiary institutions in the country. How do you wish the government could deal with that issue? Yeah, we need to start thinking about ways in which we can provide healthy food at university campuses at low cost and also food parcels for students who simply aren't able to afford food. Um, it's ironical, when I, as, a, as a white student growing up in apartheid South Africa, um, the residences inside, at, at my university provided food to students, um, and they ensured that the diet that students had was healthy. Nowadays, very few universities are able to do anything like that. And so we expect students to firstly have the knowledge to be able to cook, to cook their own food and to find and pre- prepare healthy meals, and secondly, to have the resources. And I think we know now from research that we've been doing that we have a very high prevalence of um, hunger among students and importantly we have a high level of unhealthy eating that students also are resorting to convenience foods because they don't necessarily have the money to be able to buy healthy foods or not necessarily have the skills to be able to prepare such foods so i think there's lots of things that could be done both providing resources as well as providing um, people with learning the capability to be able to eat in a healthy manner Just a reminder, Spotlight Africa, a feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective, can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT, with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours, Thursday at 300 hours, and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT. Listen to Spotlight Africa a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective. Spotlight Africa. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy which can ensure full employment. To our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NetLeg to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I've tried looking for a job for a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Just a reminder, Spotlight Africa, a feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective, can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT, with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours, Thursday at 300 hours, and Sunday 
at 1300 hours UCT. Listen to Spotlight Africa, a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective. Spotlight Africa. The average fertility rate in South Africa is on the decline in line with the global trends. A United Nations report has noted that fertility rates in the country for 2020 are projected at an average 2.3 children per uh, woman, slightly lower than the global average of about 2.5. To discuss this further, we're joined on the line by Dr. Francis Patterson, a urogynecologist at the Urology Hospital in Pretoria. Doctor, thank you very much for joining us. Now, what is infertility and why is it on the decline globally and in South Africa specifically? So, you know, infertility is quite a difficult term because it's quite, you know, it's, it's quite stigmatizing. But basically, you know, it's a medical term describing people who are, are having difficulty falling pregnant. And All right. And what are the main symptoms and causes of infertility? Uh, well, I mean, so you have to look at, at the couple as a whole. Obviously, there's there's there's, um, there's factors, there's female factors and there's male factors. On the male factor side, obviously, the the most important thing you need to look at is is the sperm. So we need to look at the quality, the quantity, all of those kind of things. And obviously, in on the on the female, in terms of female factors, we look at structural causes. We can look at uh, you know the way the uh, the quality of the eggs, the way the and when we speak, because we, we, you've said um, now that it can be both from male side and the female side, how does it affect men and women individually? You mean psychologically or, or emotionally? I mean, Holistically. But, uh, yeah, so I mean, obviously, I think... You know, everybody is different and, and everybody, um, you know, experiences these things differently. But I think whether you're male or female, it's, it's um, you know, we, we expect when we grow up that we're going to find somebody who loves us and who we love. And we expect that we are going to be able to, um, you know, get married to that person and have children with them. And I think as a... As a person, it's almost it's quite ingrained in us to expect that and to want that as a you know as a, as a basic human right. And I think it, it can be a, a massive disappointment when you find out that 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 isn't the case or that you help to fall pregnant. Mm, and how will one know if they're infertile, and who should they see if they suspect this? So it depends on your age. If you've been trying to conceive regularly at the right time. For, and you're under 35 for over a year, then you should obviously you should try and contact somebody. Mm-hmm. So your first port of call would, would be your your gynecologist, your regular gynecologist, for a structural scan and a checkup, and they can do some blood tests, and they can also do a, a test of the sperm quality, etc. And then you may need referral on to a urologist if it's a male factor, or to a, a fertility specialist if it's a female factor. Now, doctor, what I'm hearing is that we need to kind of wait to and and go through the motions first to find out. Is there no way to maybe find out before trying to get pregnant? You know, over 35, obviously, you're not going to wait as long. You're going to wait six months. But but really, the best test of whether everything is going to work is to try. And it seems almost a bit redundant to go to a gynecologist and have all these kind of invasive tests. Um, an expensive test when you're not even sure that there's a problem, if you know what I mean. You're welcome always to go to your gynae. It's a very good idea to get a prenatal checkup to make sure that you're immune to rubella and other things that we, that we check before you're pregnant, discuss pre-pregnancy regimes, all of those kind of things. But, it, but a specific fertility check before you've even started trying, I would say is, is not really necessary. All right, Doctor. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. You're so welcome. Thanks so much for having me. And that was Dr. Francis Patterson, a urogynecologist at the Urology Hospital in Pretoria, South Africa, talking uh, to myself, actually, uh, right here on Channel Africa.
from an African perspective. The time is now 17.44 Central African time. Here is Nosetle Zuma with your latest economics news. Thank you, Samara. Good evening. In an hour's time, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa will deliver his State of the Nation address. The country is anxiously waiting to hear how the government intends to address the high unemployment rate and the crisis at the failing state-owned enterprises. South Africa's economy is growing below 1%, making it even less likely to create jobs to reduce the high unemployment, which is now sitting at 29% and is expected to increase this year. Analysts say the president needs to give a clear indication of what government is going to do to stimulate the economy. Chief Economist at the Center for Risk Analysis, Ian Krushek, says Ramaphosa must give actions plans. He's got to say these are the plans for growing the economy, getting it at a higher temper, and then by that way manufacturing the possibility of new jobs, job creation. He must show us the plans that they have. They keep talking about it, but nothing happens about it. All we see is even higher unemployment. So clearly the strategy of the recent past has not been working. The South African Public Investment Corporation PIS, PIS, PIC, has disputed media reports that it is to bail out in battle power utility ESCOM. In a statement, the PIC says it has not been consulted regarding the proposed ESCOM funding solution. The PIC manages in excess of just over 134 million US dollars of government employee pension funds that the Unemployment Insurance Fund and the Compensation Commissioners Fund. The corporation says should it receive a proposal to further invest in ASCOM, it will follow its governance process as outlined in the investment mandate to make a decision. It says it is ready to engage with various stakeholders to find a suitable and sustainable solution for the risk that ASCOM poses. Power blackouts are now back in Malawi as the nation is pushed into darkness for prolonged hours just a week after the state power distribution company put up press releases celebrating 40 days of no power cuts. Publicist for Electricity Generation Company, the country's main producer of power, Moses Guaza attributes the current spate of power blackouts to a breakdown of the company's machines. The Electricity Supply Corporation of Malawi says it's working around the clock to minimize the power blackouts. Meanwhile, South Africa's power utility says no load shedding is expected. ESCOM has, however, warned that the system remains vulnerable. It started implementing load shedding at the end of last month, but there was no load shedding on Wednesday. Spokesperson Sigonati Majanja. The outlook looks positive that there will be no load shedding. However, we do urge customers to be aware that indeed Load shedding can be implemented at short notice should the system change, should demand change, and we urge customers to help ESCOM and reduce demand. And Nestle has asked its range of chocolate that used a new low sugar technique less than two years after it was launched. The Swiss food giant says demand for its milky bar balsams has been underwhelming. The bars used what Nestle described as hollow sugar crystals to cut the amount of sugar by almost a third. Confectionery makers have come under pressure from health authorities to cut the amount of sugar in the products. Nestle milky bar balsams was the first product to use technology developed by the company that creates sugar with a more porous uh, structure which it likened to hollowing out the sugar crystals. For your financial indicators, the US dollar is trading at 361.77 Nigerian Nara, 10.80 Bozanapula, at 99.85 Kenyan shilling, and at 14.60 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, one US dollar will cost you 4.33 Brazilian rule, 63.15 Russian ruble, 71.18 Indian rupee, 6.97 Chinese yuan, and at 14.80 South African rand. The US dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British pound at 8.9. 
91 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at $1,572 and platinum at $964 per ounce. The price of brand crude oil is $55.88 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Nosiche Zuma. With the latest Channel Africa Sports News at this hour, I'm Neto NETO Chemani. From the sports desk, a very good evening. Starting off with football news. Zimbabwe's Babafield Stadium faces another rigorous CAF test in two weeks' time, and if the stadium fails to satisfy the inspectors, Zimbabwe's senior men's team could be forced to play their next 2021 AFCON qualifier on neutral soil. Although the test is meant to give the inspectors an idea of the country's preparedness ahead of the start of the 2022 World Cup qualifiers in October, their assessment will also cover the 2021 AFCON matches. As shown in their past assessment, once a stadium is deemed unfit, it is barred from hosting all international matches. Already the National Sports Stadium, Rufaro and Mandava, have been barred by CAF from hosting international matches. The Warriors are set to take on the Desert Foxes of Algeria, the defending African champions in a 2021 AFCON qualifier next month. Baba Fields received a partial clearance to host international matches, with the inspectors demanding that the floodlights at the stadium should be improved, or else it could be condemned. Since their last visit, nothing has been done to improve the floodlighting system at the stadium, and this has triggered fears within the Zifa leaders they could get another negative report. On to tennis news. South Africans will compete in the upcoming BNP Paribas World Team Cup Africa qualifying, which runs from the 14th to the 17th of February in Nairobi, Kenya. South Africa will be represented by Evans Maripa, Aluandes Kosana and Leon Els, who will battle it out for a spot in the 2020 BNP Paribas World Team Cup. The ITF's flagship wheelchair tennis team event to be held on the 4th to the 10th of May at the Villamura Tennis Academy in Portugal. The BNP Paribas World Team Cup is often referred to as the Davis and Fed Cups of wheelchair tennis. Tennis South Africa commercial manager Anthony Murutani has more. It's been a great week for South African wheelchair tennis players. I think specifically uh, Evans Mariba, who did very well to win two titles in the Nairobi Open in Kenya. Evans Mariba, together with Awandas Kosana and uh, Leon Els, will be representing South Africa in the BNP Pariba World Team Cup Africa qualifying, uh, which starts tomorrow in Kenya in Nairobi. South African tennis star Kolo Munzi has reached the African Junior Championships men's singles final with a 6-3-6-4 triumph over Toki Rainavo of Madagascar. The tournament is currently ongoing at the University of Pretoria Tennis Courts in the country's capital city, Pretoria. Murutani has applauded Munzi, who has dominated the play this week. It's such an exciting, uh, it's been great watching Kolo from the beginning of this week at the African Junior Championships, which started with the individual com- competition. Today, he just won his semi-final match, and it will be a tough one tomorrow when he goes up against his Australian Open Davos partner uh, from uh, Ivory Coast. And he's literally east past every opponent, reaching the semi-final three, and uh, I mean reaching the final three. And we look forward to the uh, battle tomorrow against his doubles partner um, when they are fighting for the boys' singles title. In motorsport, the Vietnam Grand Prix is expected to go ahead on the 15th of April, despite concerns over the coronavirus, says Formula One's managing director, Ross Braun. Vietnam's inaugural race is being held in Hanoi, 100 miles from the border with China, the center of the outbreak. The Chinese GP, which was scheduled for the 19th of April, was postponed yesterday. Today, Vietnam announced that it had quarantined 10,000 people in the commune of Son Loi, 30 miles northwest of Hanoi, because of fears over the spread of the disease. And finally, in cricket news. 
South African cricket side Dolphins captain Keshav Maharaj is hoping his team can bounce back from their momentum one-day cup setback in the previous game over the weekend and hit back against the Knights in Bloemfontein tomorrow. The KwaZulu-Natal franchise fell to their first loss of the campaign, where they were edged out by the Cape Town Cobras by five runs on the DLS method in Peter Maritzburg. You will never leave a footprint if you drag your feet. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto N-E-T-O Chemani. This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up this hour of Africa Digest from myself, Samara Magesi, producer Lib Muswell, and the rest of the team. Thank you so much for listening. Should you have any comments on the show, send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or send us a tweet at channelafrica1. And you can also WhatsApp us on plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven. Join us again from 1900 hours Central African time where we'll be crossing live to Cape Town where the State of the Nation address is happening. And uh, we'll be filling you in on what President Cyril Ramaphosa has in store for the country this year. Channel Africa from an African perspective. And right now taking us to the top of the hour is Zambio Sebenza by the Soil featuring Lady Smith Black Numbers. We'll see you later.